begin again. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwelt. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 9 and picking up where we just were a moment ago. All right, here we go. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9 and we're talking about blood and why blood was used to cleanse the Exodus generation. Moses, in his day, when he was placing them under Mosaic covenant, he said, this is the blood. And and in Exodus 24, we're not going to turn back there. Last week we spent a bit of time in Exodus 24. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And Jesus adapts that in, in communion, in the upper room, when he's preparing his disciples for the cross. He deliberately uses the Mosaic language. Only when Moses was placing Israel under Mosaic law, Jesus and his work on the cross is preparing to put Israel under the new covenant, the new covenant that replaces the Mosaic covenant, you understand. So these things become important for us to connect together from what Israel had to what Israel has promised to have in the future and and what we're doing in between. What we in the body of Christ are doing as the body and bride of Jesus Christ becomes significant. And so Hebrews 9.20, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And so that was the blood sprinkled by Moses at the time. The parallel to this, the the analogy to this, is that when Jesus ascended, he ascended to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. But the people are not yet cleansed. That's important. The Jewish people are waiting the second advent of Jesus Christ for the nation of Israel to have the blood applied to their account. And so according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All right, so let's hold your finger here. Let's look very quickly at at Exodus 24. I want you to see this. If you haven't already marked it in your Bibles, I want you to mark it. Exodus 24 so that we can see the parallel. This is all shadows and typology being fulfilled uh, by Jesus for the nation of Israel, not for the church. All right, so in Exodus 24, they have um, a, uh, shall we say, a, an empty promise in verse 3, because Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now this is before the sacrifice. This is wishful thinking looking forward. And the Jewish people had a lot of wishful thinking looking forward until it came down to the sacrifice. And then when it comes time for the sacrifice, there's a stumbling block and there's an obstacle and there's an an aspect that the the Jewish people could not accept, would not accept, did not accept. They crucified their Christ, even though they had made this bold statement uh, prior, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And uh, well, the God of truth will hold you to your vow, let me tell you, all right? So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And we have a ceremony here whereby the whole nation will be represented. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. The young men are involved in the sacrifice while the elders are involved in the feasting that's going to follow. 
And here we go. They uh, sacrificed young bulls as a peace as peace offerings to the Lord. So the sacrifice, this is key. And the analogy for this, of course, is the death of Jesus on the cross. Now Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. If you don't have this marked in your Bible yet, make a mark here at verse 6. Half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So why did he set that first half aside? Why was that set apart? Very, very important. Okay? I feel like I'm teaching a cooking show on the TV where the, you know, Rachel Ray or whatever that lady's name is, and she's getting the things mixed together, and, and, and then she says, now we're going to set this aside. Anyway, this blood gets set aside. Only part of the blood sprink- is sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now it's more than just a restatement of what they had said before, it's actually an amplification of what they had said before, and it's in the consequences of the death of the animal ritual, of the shedding of blood. And this has not yet happened for the Jewish people. They have not yet sworn obedience to the Christ that they crucified. They will. It's going to take them tribulation to get them there. That's, that's what's going to humble them. Alright? So, when the Jewish people accept the sacrifice on their behalf and, and utter the come into the oath to obey it, then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we have the picture. We've got to be solid on this. The, the, the death of the animal is not the end of the story. It's necessary. But until the blood is applied, they're not yet under the covenant. And so the the foreshadowing, the typology, the doctrine that's taught here, it has its fulfillment still in the future. Because Jesus died on the cross. That was 2,000 years ago. Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And he went to heaven to cleanse the altar. He cleansed the heavenly altar. But we're right now waiting for verse 8 because we're still waiting for book for verse 7 we're waiting for the jewish people to look upon him whom they pierced and to call upon the name of the lord so as to be saved until israel is repentant to uh to trust in the christ that they crucified he will not return and his blood will not be applied to their account the nation of israel is not yet under the new covenant because that blood has not yet been sprinkled. It's still been set apart in those basins, waiting to be applied to the nation of Israel, the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, and then, as you'll notice, then there's a feast. Once the blood is applied, they get to feast with God, and the elders are going to eat and drink and feast with God. And uh, Jesus said, I can't wait to drink this drink. But he knows that uh, he has to die on the cross first when he was with the disciples there in the upper room. All right, so that's Exodus 24. We can come back now to Hebrews and recognize the, the necessity of this blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood. And so we spent some time last week dealing with this. Blood was the cleansing and atoning physical type for almost everything under Mosaic law. 
Leviticus 17.11, where the life is in the blood. The reason why blood was the picture. We wouldn't normally think of blood as a cleansing agent. We would think if you pour blood on something and smear it all over there, you're not cleaning it up. You're making a big mess out of everything. But God says blood is cleansing because the soul is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The doctrine being taught by the blood centers on the soul life of Jesus Christ, which is poured out for our redemption. The key understanding for blood is the connection between blood and soul life. Also, blood is necessary, and even before Mosaic Law ever got written, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, this doctrine was taught on day one, when they thought that fig leaves could cover their nakedness. God says, no, there's no blood in that. The covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness required blood. That's why it was animal skins and not fig leaves. Likewise, the offerings of Cain and Abel. Abel brought a blood offering. Cain brought vegetables. There's no blood. All right? The doctrine requires blood because a substitutionary death, the laying down of a soul, will be the price accepted by the Father for our redemption. So the coverings of Adam and Eve's nakedness and the offerings of Cain and Abel teach the necessity of bloodshedding long before such doctrines were codified under law. Long before Moses put it on tablets and the, and the Jewish people had it under law, it, it, was, it was known it was known. All right, on to verse 23 then. Therefore, it was necessary. Therefore, it was necessary. So without the shedding of blood, this is the concept. It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Here's the necessity. The necessity is for the heavenly reality to be cleansed with a reality sacrifice, not a shadow sacrifice. You can't use a replica. Blood is a replica. The replica can cleanse the replica. You can take the blood of a goat and you can cleanse an earthly priest. You can cleanse an altar, a, a garment, uh, a utensil. You can cleanse the, all the earthly uh, uh, things related to the replica. Cleansing a replica with a replica is great. Blood's the replica, and uh, we're fine for that. But to cleanse the heavenly temple, the temple that's, that Satan defiled in his fall, the temple whereby the Melchizedek priesthood operates, to cleanse the heavenly temple requires better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. And that uh, makes all the difference in the world. Understand, earthly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments being replicas and types of the heavenly realities are quite appropriately cleansed and atoned for with blood sacrifices. That should make all the sense in the world after the last two weeks of going through these verses. The earthly sanctuaries, altars, and furnishings, and garments being replicas and types of the heavenly realities are quite appropriately cleansed and atoned for with blood sacrifices. That makes sense? Makes all the sense in the world. It's like uh, when uh, your little girl grows up and you get her a little play kitchen to play with, one of those Fisher-Price things, and, uh, and she wants to uh, wash dishes. You don't have to give her real dishwashing soap. You can use that in the real sink with the real dishes. 
But in the play Fisher-Price kitchen, she can have pretend dish soap. So she can pretend to wash her pretended dirty dishes. All right, that's the picture. Don't confuse the replica with the reality. Blood cleansed the replica because blood itself was a type. Blood itself is a type. The reality had to be cleansed with with the real sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The heavenly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments required the soul life of Jesus Christ and spiritual death. The heavenly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments required the soul life of Jesus Christ and spiritual death. The Hebrew language in, in Isaiah 53, 12 says he poured out his soul, his nephesh, his soul life. Isaiah 53, we know this, we know this very well. Uh, your Jewish friends don't know it at all though. <laughs> Just letting you know. It's in their Bibles, but they never read it. Isaiah 53 Verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus becomes the priest and the offering on the altar of his own soul. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Of course, a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ will be his offspring. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. The anguish of his soul was actually the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane that suited him to become the Redeemer. And so by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. If he didn't have victory in Gethsemane, he never would have gone to Golgotha. That becomes important as well, as he will bear their iniquities Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. That term himself, that's his own soul. He poured out his nephesh, his soul, to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Even when he was hanging there, He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was interceding for the transgressors, accepting our guilt in our place. As far as the replicas go and the type goes, you can bring an animal that's not you. The animal is taking your place. It's a substitutionary death because it represents a reality. When Jesus came, there was no animal to take his place. It was not about a substitutionary death. He was the substitutionary death. He took our place. When uh, Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, God will provide. There was himself, the, the ram, right? There was no ram in the thicket for Jesus. Jesus was the ram in the thicket. Jesus took our place. It is so critical that we understand the shadows versus the realities as is described here. And so earthly sanctuaries, can, their replicas, their types, they can be cleansed with a type. And the blood is a type. So you can cleanse a type with a type, and that's fine. You can cleanse a shadow with a shadow, that's fine. It teaches the doctrine, and that's great. And for 2,000 years, that's what they did. 
But now Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. We have the once and for all finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The reality has to be cleansed with reality. Better. Better. The heavenly things must themselves be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. The heavenly things themselves must be cleansed with better. And how is it better? It's better in every way. It's better, infinitely better in every way. Specifically though, it's better because substance is better than shadows. Substance is better than shadows. In fact, (laughs) without substance, the shadow has no meaning. The shadow has no purpose. There's no point in the shadow if substance never comes. What good is there to have a shadow that never has a, a, a fulfillment? To have a type without an antitype? How useless would that be? Which is why Muslims are hopeless. One of many reasons why Muslims are hopeless. But why the Quran is so self-contradictory and, and, and wrong they have the uh, they this change the story because they hate the Jews so they change the story and instead of Isaac they make it Ishmael, Ishmael is the son that Muhammad, that uh, Muhammad said that that Abraham loved and so they have Ishmael, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Ishmael so they they pervert the story and they tell that story in the Quran, just changing the names out, failing to recognize then that a shadow needs to have a fulfillment, a type has to have an antitype. And in the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, they have no antitype anywhere in the Quran. They deny explicitly that Jesus died on the cross. They said, no, Jesus didn't die on the cross. And so the Quran itself fails in uh, this uh, principle that substance is better than shadows. The shadows have to give way to the substance. In fact, apart from us, they would not be made perfect, we're told. We'll get to that at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. If it wasn't for church age saints, Old Testament saints would, uh, would not have uh, the, the realities that they're going to have in the resurrection. So substance is better than shadows. Personal is better than a substitute. There's a better sacrifice. Recognizing that all the animal ritual had a substitute taking the place of the guilty party. And, and every sheep that died was not guilty of, of your sin right? You were guilty of your sin, but that sheep took your place. That goat took your place. A substitutionary death that's accepted in the place of the person. Well, all right. I guess as far as that goes, but the personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ is better than a substitute. Also, and I think it's the biggest of all, once and for all is better than over and over and over again. Because that Day of Atonement, every year, here we go again. Every year, here we go again. Year after year after year. Generation after generation after generation. The high priest would die and his son would become the new high priest. Then it was his turn. Year after year after year until he died. And then his son would take it over. Year after year after year until he died. Now you realize... I mean, it's acceptable as far as it goes because it's designed to teach, it's designed to anticipate. But if a fulfillment never comes, then all of that ritual is just endless and and without purpose. If, If that never stops, if it's just year after year after year with constant reminders of sin, 
When does it finally get dealt with? It never does. It never does because it's just another animal substitute next year and here we go again. So the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ where he said, it is finished. And, you know, I mean, wow. You know what that means in the Greek? Of course you do. It means it is finished. (laughs) Okay. It means he's not doing it again. Wouldn't have to do it again. Wouldn't want to do it again. The Father doesn't want to do it again. It's a marvelous testimony to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Better than the over and over and over again. And as the point gets made um, repeatedly through the book of Hebrews, we should catch on and uh, recognize that. In fact, spot it with me here for the rest of this chapter. Um, in, in verses uh, 24 through 28 comes effectively a restatement of what he said in the early part of the chapter. He goes back and he says it again, which uh, I think is marvelous. All the great Bible teachers do that. They repeat themselves over and over and over again so that the point gets driven home. Better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. As glorious as it was, it was still human built. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. So here's all the superiorities. Here's all the better. Blood not his own? No, go with your own blood. Stand in your own merit. Well, no high priest could do that until Jesus. Okay, so there wasn't a high priest yet that could stand on his own merit. Every high priest prior to Jesus had to bring an animal. Jesus stood there himself. And uh, not again and again and again, but once and for all. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once after this comes judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Huge differences between first advent and second advent. First advent, he came to deal with sin, did that once and for all. Not going to repeat that, not going to do that again. That's old business. When he comes back the second time, sin is not on the agenda. He's dealt with that. So substance is better than shadows. Personal is better than a substitute. Once and for all is better than over and over. All right, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a replica, a holy place made with hands. Anything human made, anything built by man is going to be flawed, imperfect. Anything built by man, uh, no. He went to heaven. He cleansed the heavenly reality, not the earthly replica. And uh, recognizing that all of those shadows had a purpose. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill 
So what's, what fulfills all of those animal sacrifices? What fulfills not just how those animals died, but where did the blood go after those animals died? What was it used for? It was used for cleansing. It was used for sanctifying. Well, that means Christ has more work to do with, with his own spiritual death after he ascends, after the cross. He's got to cleanse the heavenly temple. And that's what we see happening here. So he doesn't go into the replica, he goes into the reality, right? I've told you guys before about the uh, Parthenon replica that they have in Nashville, Tennessee. And it's, it's a scale, built a scale of what it looked like before it was destroyed. If you go to Athens, you'll see the destroyed Parthenon and what's left of it. But if you go to uh, Nashville or Memphis? Nashville. If you go to Nashville, Tennessee, you'll, uh, you can walk through. They've created a, a scale uh, of what it looked like before it was destroyed. And uh, anyway, so it's kind of fun. And you look around and you think, okay, this is what the pagans did. And you see the, the, the statues and the gods and the goddesses and, and all that stuff. Well, that's a replica. And that's the best we're going to do these days until they invent time travel and we can go back. But that's what we got. It's a replica. It's all we got. Jesus didn't go into the replica. He rent the veil in two and then left it exposed while he went somewhere else. While he went to heaven in his ascension. <clears throat> Jesus Christ exposed the emptiness of the earthly holy place and had no need to enter therein. Jesus Christ exposed the emptiness of the earthly holy place. And we don't have to read all three of these. They're all parallel to each other. But Matthew uh, 27, 51 I don't know, how often do you read the Gospels? I like to read them periodically. In fact, there was a time, it's been a while, but there's been a time I used to read the Passion narrative every month. Once a month, just pick a, pick a Gospel, rotate through the four Gospels. It's a nice uh, reminder of the price that he paid. And so um, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Of course, the thieves were crucified with him. Uh, two robbers crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, actually fulfilling prophecy, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They felt it was their proof that he couldn't be God's son because he was dying. If God, were son, if, if God loved you, he would save you. All these temptations. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Does God really love you? This is their temptation. Does God really love you? You know, if God loved you, he wouldn't put you up on that cross. All these are the things. Satan hits us with the same lies today. 
and you start to think that uh, that God doesn't love you. You start to think that you need to do something. The robbers who had been crucified with him also insulting him with the same words. And from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So all that abuse that he endured, all that work that he endured, and now it's time to get down to business under darkness because darkness represents judgment and darkness is separation from the Father. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, quoting Psalm 22, 1. I think, he's, I think he quoted the whole psalm. But starting with Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Well, no. Shows you how much they know. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So here's the event. And this veil is rent in two. That, that veil which represents a barrier between sinners and the holy God. How can sinners approach the holiness of God? Well, Israel was given a ritual whereby a sinner could have temporary forgiveness and could pass one day a year into the holiness of God and represent the covenant nation. And only one day a year, and then it was right back out again. Well, that, that's done. That's over. That's finished. That veil is rent in two. The, the, uh, the obstacle between God and man, that barrier is dealt with. Jesus now brings us to the Father. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so it's torn in two from top to bottom. I've read different accounts on how much this veil weighed and how heavy it was and what kind of miracle it was to split this thing like that. And, and of course, top to bottom showing God did it, not man different things like that. But, you know, it's, it's curious to me. I think there was a side effect to this in that uh, this is, you know, this is, this is a big deal. This is Passover weekend in the temple. The priesthood is going to be very, very busy on Friday and Saturday and Sunday and on through eight days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a, a very, very busy place. Yeah, it'd be like the church auditorium on Easter Sunday or something. You're going to have a crowd of people there. So how many witnesses are you going to have to this rent veil and this empty room behind the veil? Because you know what? They don't have an Ark of the Covenant. They came back from Babylon. They didn't have an Ark of the Covenant to put in there. They just had an empty room with a veil in front of it. All right. And so he exposed the emptiness of the earthly holy place and had no need to enter therein. It's also uh, widely believed, they won't admit it, but the tradition is, is that, uh, uh, I'm losing the name now, Simeon and, and uh, the other high priest, his father-in-law, they actually had to go in there on Saturday morning, break all kinds of Sabbath laws. They, were, they had to work. They had to stitch that, veil back together again and uh, repair that veil before before uh, services started the next morning anyway curious 
Standing before God the Father, Jesus Christ appeared and presented himself on our behalf. Now, if you want a glimpse of what happened in heaven, you don't get it in Matthew 27. In fact, after the veil is rent in two, he'd already breathed his last, he'd already delivered up his spirit. Uh, Jesus uh, stays dead for the rest of the chapter. It's not until chapter 28 that he's risen. And, uh, but we have to go back to Daniel chapter 9 and we can see his ascension. We can see the holy place he did enter into, Daniel chapter 9. So back to the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 9. I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is a thrilling chapter. There's four beasts. Uh, It's a great prophecy of of Gentile kingdoms. It's a great prophecy of eschatology. It goes forward to the tribulation. But there's a lot of back and forth between earth and heaven, earth and heaven, earth and heaven. In fact, it's a style that comes back, John will use this style in Revelation when he's writing about the tribulation. He'll have scenes that will shift back and forth from earth to heaven, earth to heaven, and back and forth. And you can spot it um, fairly easily enough. I think the uh, New American Standard likes to offset the the type on uh, some of the uh, scene shiftings. And so down through verse 8, we have everything that's happening on earth, and then a heavenly view in verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And so there's a glimpse of multiple thrones in a, in a fascinating prophecy. In a, in a, when, when, when Isaiah saw heaven, there was one throne. When Ezekiel saw heaven, when any when, when, when heaven is glimpsed in the Old Testament, there's a single throne. And angels, plural, are bowing before the single throne because there's one Yahweh, there's one God on the throne. But here we have multiple thrones. And it's left unstated who gets all those extra seats because the only one seated is the Ancient of Days. God the Father takes his seat. That's the Ancient of Days. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So he has attendants and he has myriads that, uh, that are accountable standing before him. The court sat, the books were opened. And then, time out, we'll, we'll go back down to earth again. We'll see some things there. That's in verses 11 and 12. Back to Antichrist, the boastful mouth. Back to heaven again in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Son of man. Pretty unusual in the Old Testament, except for here and Ezekiel. Prophet Ezekiel loved the Son of Man messages. Um, Almost nowhere else anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus used it a lot. In fact, in the Gospels, you have Son of Man used more than any other description for Jesus Christ, and the Pharisees hated it when he used it. They absolutely hated it. 
they would mock it and deride it and say, who is this son of man? Okay. You say, he's the Daniel 7, 13 guy. That's who he is. One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Presented before him. The presentations of Jesus Christ. He presented himself to 12 apostles and commissioned them for their church age ministry. He presented himself to the Father. We present ourselves to the Father. Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We present ourselves to God the Father and uh, as living in holy sacrifices, our spiritual service of worship. Presentations are specific. They're, they're, it's more than just, uh, ta-da, here I am. Okay? It wasn't just proof that he was alive, proof that he was resurrected, so much more than that. It was a personal calling of those apostles to begin the church age. Being presented before the Father, commissioned as head of the church, commissioned as the uh, high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, commissioned as the mediator of the new covenant, commissioned with every name that is named, above every name that is named. He came up before the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. To Him that all peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus Christ receives his own personal bema seat right here. And talk about maximum reward. He gets everything. He is the heir of all things. All right. So standing before God the Father, Jesus Christ appeared and presented himself on our behalf. I think the key phrase in Daniel 9.24, it says now, not year after year, but now. He entered not into a replica, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us on our behalf behalf representing not just himself personally but a corporate body that would be his priesthood in christ he is the apostle and high priest of our confession he appeared and presented himself on our behalf i think that's an important principle as well nor was it that he would offer himself often verse 25 nor was it that he would offer himself often. You know how insulting that is to, to re-crucify him again and again and again? Saying it wasn't eternal, it wasn't infinite, it wasn't once and for all, it was good enough for another year? What is that? That's insulting to the infinite price paid by the soul life of Jesus Christ. So again, Hebrews 9.25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, or as uh, a Roman Catholic priest would preach, mass after mass after mass after mass. Every time the Roman church conducts the mass, they are re-crucifying the Christ. I find that to be blasphemous. Repeated rituals represent a reality, looking back to one thing and looking forward to another. That's why you're doing them again and again and again. 
because they have a commencement at some point in the past and they have a uh, conclusion sometime in the future. They are repeated year after year, generation after generation, so long as the basis for the ritual continues and so long as the resolution has not yet come. They are repeated year after year, generation after generation, so long as the basis for the ritual continues and the resolution has not yet come. That's why it's over and over and over again. So we have the principle. The shadows were done over and over again. The substance is once and for all. And the idea of trying to repeat the substance is just unthinkable, nonsensical. It violates the very purpose of a shadow and the very purpose of a, of, a, of a reality, of the substance. So blood sacrifice, for example. Blood sacrifice was a repeated ritual. Looking back to the fall of Adam and looking forward to the second Adam coming to crush the serpent's head. And they learned this. They learned this on day one. Adam and Eve learned this the day that Jesus came to them in the garden and clothed them with animal skins, taught them that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, that with the shedding of blood of a substitute, their nakedness could be covered. All right, covered, but not removed. The sin is not removed until Jesus Christ on the cross. So blood sacrifice was a repeated ritual, looking back to the fall of Adam and looking forward to the second Adam coming to crush the serpent's head. And hopefully these are familiar to us. Genesis 3.15, Romans 5.14 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15.22-47. I know we taught this in the Roman series. Taught this at some length in the Roman series. So if you need a refresher, the website's just sitting there. You can go get all the chapter 5 MP3s you want. Genesis 3.15 Genesis 3.15. And here in the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, God promises a Savior. Genesis 3.15. So much in this chapter too. Goodness. Are we clear on this? We know that the woman ate first, right? We're clear on that? We know that her eyes weren't open until he ate the fruit. That's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. So the woman ate. She gave to the man also, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. She was judged not for her sin. She was judged in Adam. Part of the Adamic humanity. Adam was the steward. Adam was the federal head of the human race. She came from Adam, and she was responsible to Adam. Her eyes were not open until Adam sinned then the eyes of both of them were opened. And then comes uh, consequences, then comes pronouncements of the curse, but then comes the promise of a Savior. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The virgin-born Son of God, Jesus Christ. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Crushing the serpent's head or bruising the serpent's head. This is the promise they were given on the day they became sinners. 
that the seed of the woman would be their deliverer. All right? How fun is that? They call this the proto-evangelum, the prototype gospel, the very first hint at all things that we learn thereafter. You know, can you, can you teach virgin birth from this verse? Well, it's better that you teach it out of Isaiah 7, but then with hindsight, you can take the Isaiah 7 virgin birth prophecy, go back to Genesis 3, and, and then go, oh yeah, seed of the woman. Women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. What's this? Maybe this seed of the woman is actually, uh, again, an indicator. All right. So we're looking back to the fall of one Adam and looking forward to the second Adam. And this is the doctrine of Romans 5. This is our kinsman redeemer. This is the role of Jesus Christ in resolving the sin of Adam. Through one man, sin entered in the world and death through sin. That's a once and for all event. So do you think a once and for all event is going to be dealt with by an over and over and over again animal ritual? Of course not. A once and for all event is going to be dealt with by a once and for all event. And the sinless Adam who became a sinner is going to be redeemed by the sinless Adam who was made to be sin on our behalf, yet committed no sin himself. So Romans 5 Verse 12 says, just as through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Praise God for that. That God didn't just judge Adam the person, but he judged Adam the species, Adam the race, Adam the lost estate. That's why Eve's eyes were open. That's why you and I became sinners. Not because of what we did, but when Adam sinned, everybody sinned. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. You think I'm just making all this up with typology? Types and anti-types, shadows and fulfillment. There it is. Adam is a type of him who was to come, the seed of the woman promised on the day that Adam became a sinner. But the free gift is not like the transgression, For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. One fall, one salvation. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Realize that dynamic at work there? One sin on Adam's part condemned billions of humans and trillions of sins for all eternity. But Jesus, on the other hand, took the trillions of sins from the billions of sinners and accepted the single judgment of God the Father on our behalf. And so if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness that resulted justification of life to all men. It's a once and for all sacrifice. 
It has to be. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And there's nothing you and I can do. How do we add to it? How do we contribute our worth? We have none. We have none whatsoever. And the idea of a blood ritual following this, having an animal ritual after the death of Christ, as if his death was not sufficient, we need to paint a picture of something else. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We were there last hour. We get to come back again this hour. How fun is that? It's like the Holy Spirit's coordinating something here. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There you have it. There's the lost estate in Adam and there's the redeemed estate in Christ. Plain and simple. It's one or the other. This, by the way, ends all racism on the part of any Christian. You know, forget other earthly races or whatever. I mean, who cares the skin color or the national background or whatever their ethnic heritage might be? We're all in Adam. So get saved and now we're all in Christ. And then we're a new creation, neither Jew nor Gentile. What a, what a joy is that? All right, so in Adam or in Christ. Down to verse 47. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second Adam is from heaven. So this is the design. In fact, it was always the design. Had there never been a fall, there still would have been a second Adam. All right? Um, that's kind of boggles the mind sometimes, but understand this. Because um, he gives to each a body as he wishes. There are, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Each body has a glory. Notice that, 1 Corinthians 15, 40, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. Adam was sinless, he was perfect, but the glory of his body was an earthly glory. Even without sin, even without the fall. There's the glory of the sun, or the glory of the moon, or the glory of stars. Star differs from star, from glory. All right, so is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable. That's the thing. The earthly body is a perishable body. It's a dust body. It has nothing to do with the fall. It has to do with materials it was made out of. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That's not a plan B emergency plan you put into effect after the fall. It was always the design that Adamic mortality would give way to the second Adam and the heavenly glories we have in the body of Christ. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's called the second Adam. He's called the last Adam right here in the same context. There's not a third Adam. There's not a fourth Adam. There's just the first and the second. The second is last. 
because he's faithful when the first Adam blew it. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. We are promised a heavenly resurrection. The next body is going to be so much more glorious than this. This body groans. This body is a body of death. Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? By the way, communion. Church age communion is a repeated ritual. Looking back to the blood of Christ shed on the cross and looking forward to the blood of Christ sprinkled on the nation of Israel. Church age communion. Remember, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's no more communion service after the rapture of the church. There's no more communion service after Second Advent. When He comes, He's applying His blood to the nation of Israel and He's giving them the new covenant. He's bringing the Jewish people into the new covenant for the millennial kingdom. So we don't need our church age ritual anymore. Again, it's a ritual. It's looking back. It's looking forward. It's repeated over and over again. Here we go again. We'll be done with that. It's only for the church age. It's only in between first and second advent that such a thing is necessary or even possible. Remember, every time we drink that cup, we're just offering a toast for the coming kingdom of Israel, for the coming king of Israel on the throne of David. And our part to play is mediate. He's the mediator. We're the ministers of that new covenant in Christ. Important principle there. All right. Well, next week we'll come back and we'll tackle verses 26, 27, and 28. And the unthinkable aspect of doing this again and again and again and again. The kind of suffering over and over and over again. No, once and for all. Once and for all, oh, brother, believe it. Once and for all, oh, sinner, receive it. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this class. Thank you for showing us how Old Testament, New Testament, these things come together in such powerful ways. Father, thank you for your son, the second Adam, the last Adam. Thank you, Father, that by faith we are transferred from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, what a joy to pass from death into life. Thank you for these promises. I do pray, Father, that we would be Uh, aware of these things and quick to proclaim these beautiful truths because we live in the midst of 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 a crooked and perverse generation we live we're surrounded by by uh adamic lost souls and and yet father your gift is so easy your gift is so available you are nearby and knowable for all that are groping i pray that we might be the ready evangelists with feet shod and with eagerness to give an account for the hope that is within each one of us Father, that we might proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.